Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled The Gospel According to Tebow, was given on September 9th, 2018 by Bethany Shea in the series From the Ashes. starting a new series this morning. Uh, Usually what we do is Jason and I and our vision team, we try to like pray about where God is leading our church, what we need to step into as a community uh, for the next season of time. Uh, And there's many ways that we could go as a church, many different pathways that we could go down. There's, I mean, the Bible is like endless. We could really go through it again and again. And honestly, there's actually something called electionary that a lot of churches use. And it's a three-year cycle of prescribed passages of scripture going from the the Hebrew Bible and New Testament gospel messages, scriptures. And so the neat thing about doing a lectionary is that what we're studying here, the church down the street is probably studying that same passage and it just kind of makes it more communal and binding. We've done that in the past. We didn't want to do that again this time for this season because God was bringing us somewhere else. Um, There was also something that we're like, oh, maybe we just need to walk our church through like something more intriguing, like money, sex, and power sort of a series, because there's never too much time that we could talk about money, sex, and power, honestly. (laughs) But since we're starting Rooted on Thursday, and you really get deep into those areas of money, sex, and power, and what it means for our lives, the joys of it, the issues that come, the sin that binds us to those things, uh, I feel like maybe that should be something that we stick into like the small group setting that we can get life together with. So we, were, we felt like our Sunday gathering needed to be focused on something else. And Jason and I had recently uh, started following an artist named Scott uh, Erickson. And he's a friend of a friend who's actually spoken here at Catalyst before named Justin McRoberts. And um, he, this guy Scott, put together, he has like all this art that's super prophetic in so many ways. It, it, you could follow him on Instagram. But um, he had this painting that Jay and I were really moved by and very struck by this summer. And I think it's already been up a couple times. Did Paul, can you put that up there? And it resonated with us in a lot of ways. So I just want you guys to look at it for a minute and ask yourself, like, what, what does this mean? What kind of emotions are coming up or feelings? Anybody want to share what's coming up for you? Yeah. Losing church to time. Okay. Yeah. What did she say? Losing church. Losing church to time. Yeah. David. Time is running out for the church. Time is running out for the church. Jessica. Say a little louder. The age of religion is ending. Okay. What else? There's no right or wrong. It's your perspective. The end is near. Okay. Opportunity. Opportunity. Tyler. Uh, church as we know it will be different soon. Okay. Yeah. Think about flipping it the other way, then it's going to go back, not go back into the same, but it will be a different form. Okay. Amy said flipping it the other way, so it's kind of maybe going into a new form. Yeah. David. Out of the ashes, looking at the Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's a provocative painting, I think. It, I mean, I think it resonates with a lot of us, considering that 
you are all in a church building right now. So something brought you here, but yet I think for many of us, we feel uh, a shifting maybe. Jay and I were praying about where to take our church this fall in regards to a biblical text and what's going on within so many of us, what we've been hearing from you all. And, and John 3.16 was where we felt like we needed to land. And I was just like, okay, John 3.16, I have no idea why you would bring us down this road because it's a verse for many of us that uh, has become so meaningless because it's become so common. I mean, how many of you memorized that verse first when you were a kid? Yeah. It's either Jesus wept or John 3.16. Either way, you've got a verse down. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a verse that for many of us, um, especially for me when I've been sitting in this text, like I feel like I've been sucker punched with grace when I read it. But at the same time, it's a verse that gets lost on a, uh, stitched onto a throw pillow or inked on a coffee mug or the verse that your grandma made you memorize until you knew it by heart, Right? So what I want to do is I want to really sit in this text. I want to sit in the text the next few months. There will be other teachers up here as well. If you ever feel like God's giving you a word, like this is, this is our place to learn from each other. We're a learning, a learning community. But the questions that came up for me when I've been looking at this verse so far is, uh, is who is God? The, the verse is, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Yep, there it is. Who is God? What version of God is John, the writer of this gospel? What version is, is John talking about? Why does John use the generic to describe God instead of something more specific like Yahweh or Creator or Father? Why is loved past tense? Because I thought that God still loves us, right? Why is it something that happened? Does that mean that God doesn't love the world now? Or who is the world? Because if I look at the Bible, I remember Jesus saying not to love the world or anything in the world. So what does it mean that God loves the world, and how does that belong? And God's Son that God gave, who is, who is the Son? What does it mean to not perish? Perish from what? Is this for today, or is this for, does that mean hell, or some sort of horrible thing that is to come someday, somewhere, after we've taken our last breath? And everlasting life is that angels and clouds and and harps and heaven or what does that even mean i don't know a lot of the answers yet because i haven't studied it piece by piece because that's not what we're doing today so you'll have to come out back but we are going to sit in this text for the next yeah there you go we are going to sit in this text for the next couple of months we're going to see what god has for our little church our church is one that we are based on discipleship on making disciples of jesus christ to bring the transforming gospel of God's love to Humboldt County and beyond. Whatever context that God has you in, you are meant to bring the gospel there. And so what we do here is we want to build disciples who then make disciples. And some of our core values of that is up, leading into a relationship, a deepening relationship with God. In is is a relationship deeper with each other, this this authentic sort of community that we're trying to create here and trying to allow the spirit move into. And then also out, which means to love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and our neighbors could literally be the person living next to you that you are supposed to invite over for dinner. The neighbor that God is calling you to care for might be a neighbor in the industrial prison complex that you are called to minister to and you've never met. 
This is the place where we discover those things. This is that safe space that God moves in our lives and then convicts us and transforms us to live out his mission in the world. And we get to be a part of that here in this small church. And I believe this verse and what it represents is a bedrock to the church. It means we're using it to make disciples for the hope that it represents in the world. And as I've been mulling over that painting in conjunction conjunction with John 3.16, there have been a few horrific events that have created instability in the church over this last summer, right? One of the first things that came out this summer was uh, a mega church called Willow Creek, and a lot of you have heard of it. It's an enormous church in Illinois. The lead pastor has just been accused of sexual misconduct. And for women to be under a man of power and influence in an institution based on trust and based on goodwill and to have her dignity stripped away is absolutely evil. And I know that there are many other vulnerable people being manipulated and being used throughout many churches and the secrets are long and wide and we grieve alongside those who have been taken advantage of. And another appalling thing that came out this summer was within the Catholic Church where thousands of children were horrifically abused at the hands of pastors and priests. And most of you have read these stories. Most of you have felt the absolute disgust that comes up in your gut, that anger and that grief through reading these things. So how do we respond as people of God? How does the church respond? How should she respond? Because our church is their church, and we are the church together. It's not like, oh, well, good thing I'm not Catholic, or good thing I'm not at that church, or good thing I'm not over there. Our church is their church, and their church is our church, and we are the church together because the church is meant to be the hope of the world. And in the biblical sense, there are no divisions of denominational lines. There's no Catholic or Protestant. There's simply the church that was birthed out of Jesus Christ and his disciples and those future leaders guided by the Holy Spirit. So how are we to respond? What I love with this painting is that we find the church is not meant to burn down. (laughs) I mean, when we face obstacles or when we find deep and embedded sin embedded in our places of worship, embedded in our leaders that we trust, my gut reaction is just to burn it all down. You know those memes where like a spider is in the house and they're like, burn the house down! Like that's where I'm like, oh, there's a spider in there, it's over, we're done. Let's walk away now. (laughs) Like to even deny being associated with such a place. However, the church has weathered far worse storms than this. The church has unknowingly and sometimes intentionally invited wolves into our midst that have come to kill, steal, and destroy. And whenever these horrific happenings where power and greed corrupt her, there are good Christians on the margins that help breathe new life into her. And we would assume that this thing would be dead for sure, and yet there's always new life that happens because God has built God's family, and we know this family is good. And I don't think the church is meant to burn down. I think the church is kind of going through another great emergence of sort, a great awakening, right? 
There's a late theologian, and uh, her name was Phyllis Tickle, and she, she coined this phrase, the great emergence that's happening within Christianity, within the institutional church. It's another kind of reformation that is happening. And I believe the institution of the church might still be alive and well, and we celebrate that, and we support that, and we're a part of that. But at the same time, that model is running out of time, and what's left at the bottom gets to be reformed into something new. And I believe it's exciting to see that God is moving in the church doing, during this new reformation of sorts that I feel, I see it. And I think a lot of times it's happening in America in a different way. And in other countries, it's like a different sort of reformation that's happened. A rebirth, of, like a, a life spring fling, like a spring flowing up from the ground of what God is doing, that sometimes us in America miss. So I believe the church, which is simply the gathering of disciples or followers of Jesus, is becoming born again. And if we feel we need to hunker down and protect the institution and put up more more scaffolding and insulate within our traditions, and defend our pastors and priests at any and all costs because they are God's appointed, time is changing for that. The church will never die, but our human models of structure are needing new life. Yeah. And Jesus spoke, if you remember those, those passages of Jesus t- talking about the old wineskins and the old wine and then the new wineskins and new wine. And if you put new wine and old wineskins, the wineskins are like already conformed to the wine that's there. And when the wine ferments, it, ferments it, it's supposed to expand the wineskin. And if the wineskin is old and brittle, it'll just break. And everything good that was in it would just pour right out and not be useful any longer. And Jesus speaks about this new wine and new wineskins where the old wine and the old wineskins are good they were good and they were valuable the old way of doing religion the old way of seeking god had their place and they were good and needed and important at the time that they were used the old methods helped people be led to god the old methods were important But the old methods oftentimes brought legalism and pharisaical thinking that placed human limits on who God actually loves. But Jesus brought this new perspective, this new thinking of of how to see the world. He called it a kingdom perspective. It was based on a God who flung open the doors and invited everyone to join the table. That the community, God's community was no longer based on on rituals and strict sacrificial guidelines. God's community was based on an individual finding their identity in God, on finding their identity as God's beloved, and finding their sense of purpose within the community, and finding their dependence upon God and, and and their need for God's forgiveness and their need for God's grace, and then finding that commitment to God's family or God's church. And perhaps this is one of the many times throughout history where God is inviting the bride of Christ, the church, to begin unpacking some of that insulation and defenses so she could actually be reborn. Maybe all that protection 
the church has padded herself with through long lists of well-meaning traditions and human-based orthodoxy. It needs a rebirth as well. And perhaps through a great emergence or a continual reformation, that season that many of us find ourselves in is not the end of the church, but a new kind of wineskin that God is providing for God's family. Perhaps this new wineskin looks a lot like John 3.16, where our focus becomes a reformation and a transformation of our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Turn with me to Romans 12. Paul was writing to the church of Rome that was filled with non-Jews and Jewish people, Gentiles and Jewish people alike. In this church, this new church trying to figure out their footing with what it means to be followers of Jesus as Roman and as Gentile and as Jewish folks. And he calls every single one of them brothers and sisters. There's no elect and non-elect. It's just brothers and sisters. Verse 1 and 2, it says, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think what Paul's doing here is he's asking Christians in the faith to renew their minds, to prepare their hearts for what God was doing through Jesus. So on that, turn with me to John chapter 3. Because we're not going to just look at the one verse today. That'll come in the weeks ahead. All right, we're going to read verses 1 to 21. I don't mind reading it, but does somebody else feel like reading God's word this morning? Yeah? Thanks, Haley. Perfect. John 3, 1 to 21. Yeah, read out nice and loud. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing with God without God. Moses 
have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to save, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have gone, what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Amen. Thank you. Any thoughts coming up so far? Either from this passage or from the painting or from just the spirit speaking to your life? God hates religion. Yeah, well, he definitely talks about that, especially in the Old Testament. Yeah. I think the verse right after, for God's love the world, is just as heavy as, you know, because we're, you know, it says God did not come to condemn the world. So it's, I don't know, those two just belong together. They totally belong together, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how many of us have felt like the condemnation? That is not from God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Martha. Yesterday. <laughs> okay. Good. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee, which is somebody who was really important for the teachings of Israel during that day. A lot of times we like throw the Pharisees under the bus, like, oh, those terrible Pharisees, but they were doing what they felt like God was calling them to do, the best that they knew how. And they had, I think a lot of them had those good hearts involved as well. But the Pharisees were known at that time as the separate ones. They were separated from whatever was wrong in the world. And, and, and they, were, they had come from a popular belief during that time that those who followed God's law perfectly, as marked out by the Torah, the Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Did I get that right? Sometimes my brain switches them around. Um, But they had to follow God's law perfectly. And if they did, they would be rewarded by God. And those who didn't follow God's law perfectly would be condemned by God. They would be punished by God. And what we see here is that Nicodemus is not just a Pharisee. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was like, man, he was top person in that area, like really important uh, of a person. And Nicodemus meets Jesus in the hiddenness of night. He is concealed by shadows. He is so curious if this Jesus is who he thinks he is. He is curious to know if this Jesus is actually approved of by God. Like, does this Jesus have authority to teach and he comes in as an expert in God's law. He's, he knows all of God's requirements, and he couldn't sleep at night because of his curiosity about Jesus and his hunger for something more than he could find in his other religious setting. He knew there was something more. 
and he needed it desperately. And he was willing to put everything at risk, but also still not fully willing to jump in because he went when no one could see him. So he gathers his courage and he meets with Jesus. And in this poetry kind of language that Jesus walks us through with like mother's wombs and being born again in the spirit, Jesus comes to that verse that we are going to sit through this fall. The Gospel of John was written by John, which is so convenient. Uh, and a lot of scholars don't know exactly who it was written by, even, but most scholars believe that it was the same John as the one that was with Jesus as a disciple, the one that called himself the disciple who Jesus loved, which is awesome. I don't think that has anything to do with like, oh, he's really arrogant or narcissistic. I think it just shows that he knew who his identity was. Like, and he claimed it. I am the disciple that Jesus loved. How cool would that be to actually sit in that? Anytime you write anything about yourself, like third person, I'm the one that Jesus loves, I guess it's true. I mean, ah, how cool is that to sit in that sort of identity? So John is, yeah, Marta. But I think for those of us who struggle with yeah. you Yep. Reminding you, you know, if there's anything that somebody speaks to another person that could remotely be a little bit true, we forget, you know, who we are in Christ. Yeah. Because before I was born again, you know, there was that. And then there's, there's all those things that I think all of us as a community of faith have to in this time that we're constantly bombarded by messages from people around us that we do identify in that. Right. That was my message right. this week because I was struggling with that, but I just felt like sharing that, that yeah. it's not um, like narcissistic. It's it's required for us to not deviate and let the liar Right. Sometimes it becomes like a continual practice of writing the truth into our hearts that I am the disciple that Jesus loves. I am the disciple that Jesus loves. Amen. So until it becomes truth, that we actually believe what we've been saying all along. I mean, it's, it's incredible what can happen there. So this disciple is probably the one that was with Jesus. Uh, the, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. Um, and this man, by the time he wrote this, he had experienced the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. He had physically lost Jesus Christ on earth, the person that he had walked with for the past three years. He had physically lost the temple that represented who God was on earth before Christ came. He had, he had lost a lot. He'd experienced everything that helped tether him to the will of God. It was gone. But what else did he have that kept him tethered? The Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit. He had his community of people. Those were the things that kept him grounded when everything else around him became destroyed. And so what he does is he pens this story of a person who's just so curious, who's living a life that feels really complicated because he's curious about what else there is. There's something more, but at the same time, isn't this all there is? Isn't what I have around me? Isn't this what makes sense? And he pens this story about somebody who's so curious with just the simplicity of God's incredible and ridiculous love as shown through Jesus Christ. And John juxtaposes this man who is convinced that God could only love him by his perfection and by his religious commitments 
by his perfect following of orthodoxy and tradition, that God was only pleased with Nicodemus if he was upholding the law without any error. And then John compares that human mindset of perfectionism and belief with the reality that God's desire for love, for people's love, is for the entire world. That this love is experienced through new birth. And in a world hungry for new meaning, in a world hungry for new life, a new way of seeing what God was doing in the world, John speaks of new birth and the kind of love that makes everything new. Right before in the beginning chapter of this, of this book, of this gospel, John writes in verse 29 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. All of that burden that's on you, those things that keep you disconnected from yourself and from other people and the disconnected from God, what we call sin, Jesus has taken away the sin of the world. So the way a person has been living their life, the, the, the way that you've been striving for meaning and purpose and, and the way that you've been seeking your sense of self-worth by your degree or your career or that relationship that you're in or even your religious expertise has to come second to the reality that you have been entering in, that you get to enter into a new way of living, a new way of being in the world, a new birth that has taken place in the world that you've been invited into. And to step into this kind of love, the love that gave us Jesus Christ, the love where God put flesh on and became human to reveal God's heart was not for God's benefit. It wasn't for God's benefit. It was for our benefit. It was not to create an institution based on simple tradition and orthodoxy, human orthodoxy. It was, it was to create a church beloved by God and by God's orthodoxy, God's truth. And so often when we read this passage, and we'll get into this even deeper later on, but so often when we read this passage of, of you know, you will not perish but have everlasting life, so often we revert to Matthew's gospel. Matthew uses this, this saying again and again throughout his gospel of, uh, you'll be thrown into utter darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is such an encouragement. I mean, wow, he really knows how to bring it home for us. <laughs> but he uses that. And so for me, when I read Not Perish, I'm just like, save from weeping and gnashing of teeth. Awesome. But perishing isn't so much about what comes after our last breath here on earth. Perishing begins now. Like it begins where the Greek actually means to perish, it means to be lost. It means to be ruined. And you know what it feels like to feel lost, right? You know what it feels like to live without meaning, to live without that direction that God is wanting to place you on. That's what it means to be perishing. I'm sure there's more after we take our last breath of what that trajectory looks like, but we feel it now on this earth where we aren't right with God, and so everything feels off. And Jesus is inviting all people to experience the kind of love that God has that reveals what you've been created for. I mean, you've been designed for eternal life. 
You've been designed for an eternal life that begins immediately in this moment. It begins now. And that real life is experienced when you can finally accept how fully loved you are by your creator. And you are not loved. Get this, you guys. You are not loved because of what you've done. You are not loved because of how holy you are. You are loved because of what God has done and because of how holy God is. And God delights in you so much that God sent God's self so that any person willing to receive that kind of love will not live a meaningless and lost life, but are invited to live out eternity immediately. Eternal life begins today, and you have been invited to live that out. And it begins with a rebirth. It begins with a reorientation by the Spirit that might include new wineskins once again. Because God is constantly bringing about reformation in each person and within God's church. And I believe there is great hope to be found in that. One of the most beautiful, tangible reminders that we have again and again in Scripture and again and again in this family of God is through the, the Lord's Supper, is through the Eucharist, communion. Eucharisto means thanksgiving. And it's, man, when we come forward for communion, or we go to the back, actually, that bread represents Christ's body for you, and the, the, the juice represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, for taking on the sins of the world. Eucharisto means thanksgiving because all we can do is say thank you. There's no, well, you better figure out your life first. You better know the doxology correctly first. You better have all the creeds memorized first. Thankfulness. That's all. And so we get to come back. We get to take a piece of that bread, receiving a little bit of Christ that tangible amount of Jesus. We dip it in the juice, and it is a reorientation back to what the Spirit has been doing all along and that we've been invited into, this vast party of the church that is all over the world. We practice open communion here. You don't need to be a regular attender or a member. We don't have membership anyway, but you don't, this, is, this is your space. This is your family, and we practice open communion. There's generosity boxes. If, that's, if this is your place, we always encourage you to continually look at the ways where God is calling you to give and live a life marked by generosity and being so aware of the power that greed has over our hearts. It's a way to celebrate that. And then we'll sing three songs together. And when we're done singing, we'll make a circle and we'll go out with a blessing. So let me pray. Hmm. Jesus, you are... You are constantly reforming us, reorienting our lives. You are doing something so amazing in this world and even within Humboldt County, this small little community that you've brought each of us to. You invited us into this place during this time and what an honor it is to be alive, to exist in these moments, to be able to be a part of your church in these moments. I mean, what a joy it is to be a part of something that is being reborn. May you allow us to be reborn once again today. 
Lord, we thank you for this place of worship. We pray a blessing over our songs. We pray a blessing over the simple meals. And we have thankful hearts. It is for your glory and for your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.